Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. That's the ending of the reading of God's word today. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we are a needy people. All of us have come into this church this morning without everything figured out, without our lives put together. All of us have come into this church this morning with varying degrees of brokenness. And so, Lord, we're, we're coming to you in that recognition and in that spirit as a people who need God. And we're so thankful that that's the type of heart posture that you are eager to meet with. And so, Lord, there's a perfect combination going on this morning. We have a people full of need and we have a God of endless supply. And so, Lord, we invite you. Rather, Lord, we plead with you to meet with us now, to speak to us through your holy word, and to continue to draw us closer to you and to teach us about the life that is to be had in relationship with Jesus. Because your word tells us that that life is a life of fullness, a life of overflowing, And that's what we so desperately long for. So, Lord, do a work in us today. Speak to us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, church. For all of those here this morning that have children, you'll remember that parenting early on was all law. It was, don't touch that, it's hot. Don't take those toys from him. Don't hit her. Don't put that much food in your mouth. You'll choke. Don't get down from your seat until you finish your breakfast. And so on and so forth. Parenting young children is all commands directed at controlling the behavior of your little ones. And the law is good for that. The law does a great job for guiding very juvenile behavior and base human impulses. But, as your child matured, eventually the constant barrage of commands and of thou shalt nots gave way to an attempt, at least on your part as a parent, at forming them into the type of person who will live rightly, wisely, and healthily all on their own. This training consisted of explaining the why behind the what, And addressing not just their actions, but their attitudes, their motives. In short, addressing their hearts. Now, from a spiritual standpoint, there's a similar thing that is going on in the life of faith. The starting place for living your life rightly is a thing called the law. Let us not this morning make the mistake of pretending even for a moment that somehow because you and I are in relationship with Jesus and because you and I are in Christ that the law 
is something that is irrelevant for us or that we're somehow anti-God's law. No, the truth of the matter is that the gospel of Jesus Christ and the law of God revealed in the scriptures are perfectly uh, seamless. They work together. In fact, in verse 8 we read, we know that the law is what, church? Good. Now we know that the law is good, and then there's a condition, there's a qualifier here, if one uses it lawfully. We'll get into that in a moment. Romans 7.12, which is on the back of your bulletin this morning, emphasizes this same idea. Paul there writes, So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And then, of course, the text that Rob read for us for our call to worship this morning from the Old Testament, Psalm chapter 19, describes the law of the Lord as perfect and sure and right and pure. In short, friends, listen, God's law is good. God's law is right. God's law is just. There is no problem with the law as such. The problem is with the limitations of the law. Use the right way. The law has a tremendous purpose. But remember, the problem that Paul is warning Timothy against is that there are false teachers in this church in Ephesus who are misusing the law of God. According to verse 7, they're without understanding regarding God's law. So rather than using the law of God as a tutor that kind of brings us to faith in Jesus Christ, these false teachers were using the law in ways that turn people away from Christ. How so? How were they using the law in ways that were actually turning people away from Christ? We don't know for sure, but knowing that these false teachers are Jewish, it could be that they were engaged in the same error that was going on in the church of Galatia. When Paul warned the Galatian church against these people called the Judaizers, the problem going on in Galatia is that you had these Jewish teachers who were teaching that salvation came through obedience to the law. In other words, it was about works righteousness. It was about what you bring to the table. If you're a faithful, obedient, basically Jew, whether you're a Gentile or Jew, if you live by those Old Testament laws, that's what makes you righteous before God. That's what brings you into the family of God. That's what brings you into right standing with God. And in Galatians, Paul is like, if anybody's preaching a gospel like that, they can go to hell. That's what he says in chapter 1. So it could be something along those lines that these Jewish teachers are saying that it's about works righteousness. Now this view is unlikely because we don't see Paul say anything in 1 Timothy directly about works righteousness. And not to mention, he's not nearly as harsh here in 1 Timothy as he is in the book of Galatians. It could also be this. We know that for the Jews... The law of God was not viewed merely as a standard for kind of like moral conduct. The law of God in the Jewish understanding was actually a way of ordering a person's entire life. The law was totalizing. It taught you how you order your entire life. Every relationship, everything was ordered by the law. Perhaps then the problem with these men in Ephesus is that they're preaching and teaching that the essence of the Christian life is faithfulness to Old Testament law. So the difference would be that in, with this second possibility, it's not that they're saying 
the way to having right standing with God is your obedience to the law. But rather, what they're saying is, once you've become a Christian, here's what the Christian life is all about. Law. Obedience to the Old Testament law. That's how you please God. That's how you live as a faithful follower of Jesus. There are still Christians like this today, of course. For them, the Christian life is all about the law. It's all about living a certain way. They're called homeschool moms. Relax, I'm just kidding. My wife is a homeschool mom. My mother-in-law, this is even more dangerous, my mother's a homeschool mom. It was a joke. Lighten up, people. No, but, but these types of people, and we know many homeschool moms are some of the very best educators and best moms, but these certain type of people that I'm mockingly calling homeschool moms, for them... The Christian life is all about, listen, behavior modification. The Christian life is about living by a certain set of standards, starting with the standards of Scripture, but oftentimes extending beyond that and entering into additional requirements they're putting on people's lives. So standards like Christians don't drink, they don't listen to secular music, and they certainly don't vote Democrat. Like, where where is any of that in the Bible, but that becomes the the catch-all, the essence of what the Christian life is, is living by a certain standard of guidelines. So the goal for people like this, oftentimes, in the Christian life is creating really, really moral people, and oftentimes overly strict people. Either way, whatever was going on with these teachers in Ephesus, they were wrong. We know that much from what Paul's saying. They are making a mistake. They are misusing the law of God, and it is not being used rightly. So that begs the question, what is the right use of the law? If it doesn't save us, if if it's not the essence of the Christian life, how do you use it rightly? Well, look at verse 9. The law is useful for, he says, the lawless and the disobedient, In short, the law is very helpful for rebels. (laughs) That's who the law helps. The law is very useful for people who want to have a, and who have a tendency for living in rebellion against God. Paul goes on to list off 13 different types of people or behaviors of people that the law is useful for. Now, some people have argued that Paul is loosely basing this list here off of the Ten Commandments. So the first six descriptions that you have there in the text refer to commandments one through four, our vertical relationship with God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make idols for yourself. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. You shall honor the Sabbath. Those those commands that have to do with our vertical relationship with God, the argument goes that these, these first six Types of people or behaviors Paul's describing relate to those first four of the Ten Commandments. And then the next seven descriptions refer to commandments five through ten. The commandments that deal with our horizontal relationships, our relationships with other people. Now it's not clear if the first six in fact relate to commandments one through four, but it seems certain that the next seven descriptions refer to commandments five through nine. Here's what I mean. Commandment five in the Ten Commandments is 
Everybody's like, man, we should memorize the Ten Commandments. We should. Commandment number five is honor your father and your mother. Look what Paul lists here. He says, those who strike their fathers and mothers, an extreme form of not honoring your parents. The next commandment, commandment number six, is you shall not murder. The next thing Paul lists is murderers. Commandment seven, you shall not commit adultery. The next thing Paul lists is the sexually immoral and those practicing a homosexual lifestyle. Commandment number eight is you shall not steal. The next thing Paul lists is enslavers, literally human traffickers, people who kidnap others to sell them into slavery, which would be the extreme and the absolute worst form of stealing. Stealing another person is as extreme as it gets. And then commandment number nine, you shall not bear false witness. And Paul's next thing is liars and perjurers. And then he ties it all up with a big sweeping generality, which reminds us that this isn't an exhaustive list of sin. This isn't an exhaustive list of of what type of people the commandments of God are useful for. This is just a sampling. And so he gives us this sweeping generality in verse 10. And he says, these 13 things, and it's like he kind of just gets tired of writing a list and he goes, and, and, and whatever else is contrary to sound or healthy doctrine. These are the types of people that the law is really helpful for. The law is really good at helping us to avoid the dangerous and the destructive paths of human behavior. And this is the most basic function of the law. You can imagine if this is helpful, the law like being like a big roll of caution tape. A big roll of caution tape. And it is strung across all of the major pitfalls in human behavior, the things that you could go do and, and actually destroy yourself and destroy your relationship with God and even destroy other people. The law is like caution tape. So that as we're navigating through life, we're able to see danger. Don't go over there. This is off limits. This is bad for you. This isn't going to turn out good for you. Because sin is ultimately, in some way, shape, or form, going to do damage to a person's relationship with their God, their relationship with other people, or, their rela- or, or themselves. And oftentimes, when you sin, it does damage to all three. For example, those who dishonor their parents destroy their family unit. Those who murder destroy another person's life and also their own. Those who commit adultery destroy the love and the unity and the trust of their spouse and they're responsible for oftentimes the unraveling of their family. Those who steal harm other people and get fired or go to jail. And those who lie erode the trust of their friends and of their colleagues and they tarnish their friendships and their own reputation. And so the law keeps us off of those paths that can lead to destruction. Like the parenting of a small child where with little children your goal, quite honestly, is just to keep them from killing themselves or somebody else in those first couple of years. Right? It's not a coincidence that when you, the young moms are nodding, it's not a coincidence that when men come home from a long day and the kids are put to sleep and you ask your wife, well, how was today? It's not a coincidence that their response is, is oftentimes, we survived. <laughs> That's the best they can do. We, we survived. He or she's not dead. They're, they're sleeping. They're safe. And there's some truth to that. We're just trying to basically keep them alive. And it's not that those, those laws or those principles, if you will, 
um, ever change or ever stop being valuable. It's just, listen, that they have a limit to their usefulness. Why is that? Well, if all we taught our children throughout their whole upbringing was to not play with fire, do not steal toys from your friends, don't throw a temper tantrum every time you don't get your way in life, we would have some very underdeveloped and childish people walking around. Also, for most people, at some point, they begin to recognize the wisdom of those types of commands all on their own. And therefore, as a parent, you get to the point that you don't have to bark out those basic commands all day long anymore. Like at some point, your child discovers for themselves that touching a hot pan is not a good idea. And they go, you know what, I'm going to stop living that way. I'm not going to touch the stove and hot pans anymore. And, And the reason for that is no longer because mommy said so. The reason is because it's become self-evident to them. So again, the law, it, it, it's great. It's helpful in a sense, but it only has so much usefulness. And spiritually speaking, the law, the law also never changes or stops being a value. It's just that there's a limit to its usefulness. And church, these are the things that these false teachers in Ephesus misunderstood. They looked at the law as, as being this thing that had unlimited usefulness, as if, as if the law itself was the end all to the Christian life, the life of faith in the Son of God. What are those limits to the law? Well, I'm going to offer two for us this morning. Number one, the first limit to the law is this. The law can only condemn us. It cannot save us. The law can only condemn us. It cannot save us. What do you mean, Daniel? Well, up to this point, we've talked about who the law is useful for, the rebellious, the sinful. But now notice who the law is not for in verse 9. The law is not laid down for the just. The law is not laid down for the just. Now, if you're thinking and not sleeping this morning, <laughs> you're going you're to go, there, there's a problem with that, Pastor Daniel. And the problem, of course, is that there are no just people. There's nobody that ultimately fits in that category, that they always only ever do what's right in their life. In fact, Paul himself is going to make that argument over and over and over again in his letters In Romans 3.10, he says, As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. So if you think you're perfect, you've come to a great place this morning because we can collectively tell you you're wrong. You got issues. And even your issues got issues. There's none righteous. No, not one. Romans 3.23, Paul also says, For all have sinned. There's no exceptions here. Every single human being has sinned and we all have fallen short of the glory of God. Well, that's just Paul. He's kind of like this really really tight, restricted kind of guy. Here's what the Apostle John writes. 1 John 1.8 If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Did you know if, if we were righteous people, the law would not be relevant for us. Like if, if you were the type of person who only always ever did what was right, then the law would not really matter to you. It wouldn't help you. It wouldn't do anything for you because 
You don't even need it. The problem is, we're not righteous. And so what the law does for us is it reveals to us how sinful we are. In Romans 7, 7, Paul writes, Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. In other words, the law exposes your sin. It helps you to see as you compare your life against God's Word that you have veered off the path of righteousness. So it exposes your sin. And not only that, it condemns our consciences and it threatens us with judgment. So it does a lot. But guess what it can't do? It cannot save you. Galatians 3.11, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. So if you're the type of person who is going through your life thinking of yourself that you're basically a good person, I'm better than the next girl, but I'm relatively good, I've got it all figured out, and me and the big guy upstairs are going to work it out at the end. Again, you've come to a great place this morning. Because God is telling us in His Word, that is not the way to be okay with the big man upstairs. Because there's a problem if you think that that equation is going to be your righteousness plus nothing else equals eternal life. God's saying to you, that's not a good equation. Because whatever righteousness you think you have on your own, it's a false sense of righteousness. You are sinful. You are broken. And so your righteousness plus nothing else is actually going to equal judgment for your sin. Nobody gets in right standing with God by saying at the end of the day when your life is done, here's what I've done to earn my spot in heaven. God's going to say, based on what you've done, you've earned a spot in hell. That is not where we want to be, right church? That is not where we want to be. None of us want to be there. So don't think of your own morality. Don't think of your own righteousness. Don't think of your obedience to the standard of God's Word or some other standard you've manufactured in your own life as being somehow the source of your salvation. That's wrong thinking. The law's purpose is to make you and to make me, listen, painfully aware of our own sinfulness and rightly afraid of God's judgment. Well, Daniel, that sounds really bad. That is really bad. But it's that bad news that paves the way for us receiving good news. In this sense, when the law of God functions this way, when it shows you your sinfulness, and it shows you the righteousness of God in judging you for your sinfulness, it opens you up to say, you know what? I need some help from the outside. I I need mercy. I need grace. I need something coming to me from outside of myself. And in this sense, it leads us to Christ. The bad news of the law opens us up for the good news of Jesus. Here's what I mean. By a show of hands, how many of you have a habit of going to the pharmacy and purchasing medicine just for fun? Oh, come on. I know some of you are doing this, right? How many of you guys, let's be honest, you just go to the pharmacy maybe two, three times a week after Trader Joe's and you swing in the pharmacy and you go, you know what, this week I'm going to pick that one, that one, and that one so I can go home and just start taking these. Wait, none of you guys do that? Of course you don't do that. 
Right, right? None of us would just go start taking a bunch of medicines unless a doctor came along and diagnosed you with something and said, this is the cure for the problem you've got. In the same way, church, listen, none of us would in and of ourselves flee to a Savior unless it was for the law making us aware that we were in need of saving. And so the law serves a great purpose. It points us to Jesus as the one who is mighty to save, the only righteous one, the one who is the spotless Lamb of God who came to take away our sins through a death on the cross that He didn't deserve, where He paid for our sins. We look to that Savior now. We say, Jesus, I I need You. The law is limited in its usefulness because it cannot save us. But also, it's limited in its usefulness because, listen, the law can only change our behavior, but it cannot change our hearts. The law can only change our behavior. It cannot change our hearts. Interestingly, because we know that no one is truly just or ultimately just, a lot of Bible commentators suggests that what Paul's actually referring to in verse 9 when he refers to these these people who are the just that the law is not for, a lot of commentators say that what Paul's actually referring to is not people who are actually just because we just talked about there's nobody like that. He's referring to the types of people who think that they are just. He's referring to self-righteous people. They would would say, these commentators, they would say, it's kind of like when Jesus, remember when Jesus... In Luke chapter 5, he says this really amazing line. He says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, Jesus is not saying, look, I'm on a rescue mission, but I'm not on a rescue mission for all the righteous people because they don't need me. That's not the point he's making. The point he's making is, look, I'm on a rescue mission to save sinners who know they need a Savior, but I can't help people like this these self-righteous people who don't think they're in need of a Savior. And so according to this view, a lot of commentators are saying that that what Paul's really getting at here is that the law is not going to be helpful for the self-righteous, the people who do think they've got it all together, the people who would look at their own life and go, man, I'm a really, really moral person. It can't help someone like that because in many ways, those types of people are relatively righteous. Right? We all in this room can probably think of people, maybe it's your parents, maybe it's a sibling, maybe it's your children, maybe it's a coworker or a neighbor or a lifelong friend, and you look at them and you go, man, that is, they're a really good person. And they're not Christians. Right? Do any of you know really good people out there that aren't Christians? I know, I know plenty. And, and if you compared them against the, the general population, you'd go, yeah, they're, they're pretty righteous, pretty good, pretty moral people. And oftentimes, many of you know this from your own experience, that's the hardest person to reach with the gospel. The good person. Because again, these are the types of people that avoid the major sins. They're not out killing people. They're, they're not out cheating on their spouse. They're not out getting in fights at bars every night. Right? They're not that type of a person. They're just a good guy who's trying to love his wife, lives next door to you, and he's trying to raise his kids right, and he's trying to do good in his community, and he's not cheating on his taxes, and he's living that type of a life. And you talk to him about sin, and you talk to him about judgment, and they're like, bro, I'm good. Like, 
What are you talking about? I'm not Adolf Hitler. Why are you trying to make me out to be this bad person? Hasn't it been your experience that those are often the most difficult people to reach with the gospel? It's like the law has no effect on somebody like that because there's this self-deceived and self-perceived sense of righteousness. The Pharisees were exactly like that. Remember the Pharisees? See, we often read the New Testament and we think of the Pharisees as a bunch of bad guys. Did you know at the time that Jesus lived, the Pharisees were known popularly among Jews as the really, really good guys. The Pharisees were seen as the most devoted and devout Jews in all of Israel. They took God's law seriously and they sought to bring about salvation in Israel through a rigorous, obedient life to the law. They thought that all of Israel's problems were, were related to their sinfulness, which is true, but they thought the solution was, let's all just get really, really righteous and bring God's blessing back to Israel, which wasn't the way forward. But the Pharisees, you need to know this, they were masters of the law, at least in the eyes of other people. These were the people who prayed publicly these beautiful prayers. These are the people who followed all the traditions of the elders and, and tried to live in obedience to the Torah. They were very moral people outwardly. So why did Jesus then have such a problem with these Pharisees? Answer, because although they looked really good on the outside, on the inside, they were full of sin and evil. Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. He said, you guys are a bunch of whitewashed tombs, meaning outwardly you look beautiful, this really beautiful stone or marble tomb. But he said, but inside there's a bunch of dead men's bones. And he's saying that there's, a, there's people, these Pharisees, who the exterior of their life looks so clean, it looks so polished, it's so well done up, and yet their hearts are corrupt and they're far from God. Because listen... The law can only adjust our behavior. But the law has no power to touch your heart. For example, the law can keep a person from murder, but it can't stop them from hatred. The law can keep a person from theft, but it cannot stop them from greed. The law can keep a person from constructing idols, but it can't help you deal with idolatry. For that... What we need is the way of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. So yes, the caution tape serves a purpose. It tells all of us, it tells every man, woman, and child to ever walk this planet, these are the wrong ways to go. You're headed off a cliff. If you do that, it's disastrous. That's the purpose. But friends, listen to me. The Christian life is infinitely more than marking off all the dangerous paths that one can take. That's what the law does. But the law offers us little to nothing in regards to the life of unconditional love, abundant forgiveness, and overflowing generosity, which the Christian life is really all about. 
Again, for that life, what you need is you need the way of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who points us to the truly supernatural life of Jesus, which was a truly righteous life from the inside out. And the Holy Spirit is the only one who can empower you to actually live that type of life for yourself. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 18 and then 22 and 23, Paul says this, And think about this in relation to what we're talking about, spirit and law. Here's what he says. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Then in verse 22, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And then he adds this interesting statement. Against such things there is no law. What is he talking about? Well, he's not saying that life in the Spirit is lawless. As if, hey, I'm free in Christ, bro. I can go out and do whatever I want. That's not the way of Christ. That's not the life of the Spirit. So he's not saying that the way of the Spirit is lawless, but rather what he's suggesting to us is that the life that we're called to live in and through the Holy Spirit goes so far beyond what the law required. So sure, yeah, we're we're obeying those laws. But the life of Jesus is calling us so far beyond that. And the things that the Spirit is leading us into, there are no laws against that. Tell me one place on planet Earth where there are laws against kindness. (laughs) Where there are laws actually constructed to stop you from being the type of person who is peaceful. Those laws don't exist. This is a life on a whole nother plane. See, you need to understand as we begin to close that law always sets the minimum standard for human behavior. Laws don't set the the highest standard. They always set the minimum standard for human behavior. For example, think about traffic laws. Okay, when when you think about traffic laws, we have laws that determine speed limits, They tell us where to stop. They tell us to use blinkers when we're changing lanes so that other people don't get hit. But all of that stuff is the minimum standard for right behavior behind the wheel. I mean, think about it. None none of those laws are addressing the issue of letting a person over who's trying to get over. None of our laws about driving address hand gestures that somebody might just happen to throw up in a fit of road rage, or things that somebody might scream at another person in traffic. None of our laws address cutting people off or brake checking a person who just cut you off, unless you do it really severely. Now, none of those things I just listed are illegal, but none of them are moral. Okay, none of them are illegal, but they're all immoral. That's not the right way to behave behind the wheel. That's not the right way to treat other people. But see, law always sets the lowest bar, the lowest standard for human behavior and conduct. And friends, listen, the life of Christ is life at the highest standard. It's the way that God designed us to live for optimum human flourishing. So that as Christians, it's not just that we don't hurt people. It's that we devote ourselves to actually helping people. So that as Christians, it's not just that we don't steal from others. 
It's that we generously give to others who are in need. It's not that we just don't tear people down with our words. As Christians, we utilize our words strategically to build other people up. It's not just that we don't commit adultery with other people physically. No, it's that we don't even objectify other people mentally. It's not just that we aren't actively pushing people into hell. It's that we're proactively seeking to drag people to heaven. The Christian life is not about living a life of baseline morality. And too many Christians live it that way. And friends, I want you to know that's not a compelling witness. There are lots of good people out there. There are lots of people who their own consciences that God has given them keep them from murdering, keep them from stealing, keep them from doing a lot of nasty things. And if that's all that our Christian life is, we've got nothing to offer the world. Christianity, of course, is keeping those sorts of things. But Christianity is about living life in the God who in and of himself is unceasingly holy, is unbelievably merciful, is unendingly forgiving, and is constantly and overflowingly generous. And I'm telling you, church, as we seek to live that life, life in faith in the Son of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, we will be a compelling witness to the world. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. God, we are so thankful that when you sent your son Jesus to give us life, it was life in an abundance. It was life, as it were, that just bubbles over and spills over. And what a beautiful life you've called us to as Christians. Not a life that's just about rule keeping and trying to get other people in line, but a life that is actually lived generously, lovingly, mercifully, compassionately. And God, we're thankful that that's the life you've called us into. And Lord, I want to pray for all of us collectively as members of this body of Christ that your spirit this morning would fill us once again to overflowing. That as we leave this place today and we move over to Kirby Hall and we share a meal together, that that the spirit in that room would be one that is life-giving, that is full of joy and harmony and unity and love. And Lord, I pray that that would spill over into our homes as we leave this church today. Spill over into our workplaces and into our schools this week and onto our sports teams, into our neighborhoods. And I pray that there would be something so contagious and so compelling about the life that we are living. In short, I pray that our lives would be like the life of Christ where people of all backgrounds, people of all walks of life were just constantly drawn to this one man who seemed to be living in a whole different galaxy almost. He was living on a whole different plane of human experience. His was a life overflowing with love and mercy, selflessness and generosity. And people couldn't get enough. And Lord, I pray that some small measure of that as a gift of your Holy Spirit would be true in us. And that you would use us to draw many sons and daughters in Santa Barbara to glory. So God, we thank you for this word today. 
And we thank You for the gift of Your Son who saves us and the power of the Holy Spirit who sends us and transforms us. We worship You today for the great gift that You've given that we call salvation. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen.